So the goal today in this, in this part of the study is to consider a question that I want us to work through on Friday when we uh, make our way toward the latter end of 1 Corinthians 4. We'll be looking at verses 6 and 7 today, and uh, then we'll be working through verses 8 from verses 8 all the way through verse 16, which I want to read now and then um, open in the word of prayer and then get our study. So the question is going to be, what can we learn? What can we learn from the paternal instinct of the apostle? What can we learn from the paternal instinct of the apostle Paul? I think I persuaded you of that, the way he's framing his his engagement with them. I don't want to call it an argument, but it could be. What can we learn from Paul's paternal instinct? That's a, that's a methodology or a prism by which to look at a situation and then begin to address it. What can we learn from his paternal instinct? Also, the way he is framing his argument to the church that he explicitly said that God used him to birth. Now, the reason why I'm raising those questions is because the second major question in relationship to that is our own obligation to the body of Christ with regards to a paternal or maternal paradigm, maternal or paternal paradigm, uh, particularly when we can see the danger of the children of God drifting in exactly the same way that the Corinthians are. So I'm going to reframe that question because that's what I'm going to get at on Friday. I'm making the argument that the inference of Paul's whole pursuit of the Corinthians is around the idea of him being paternally obligated to them and thus he is now building an argument from his paternal perspective in relationship to them drifting away from his influence, as it were, losing their identity and taking and adopting identities from somewhere else. And that we can map that particular challenge that he went through in the first century on to our present generation and see that there is a serious challenge of an upline, downline, paternal, uh, filial relationship, not only in just the physical reality of our own children, but spiritually as well as socially. Did that make some sense? Right. So I want us to own, as we work through these verses, our own sense of responsibility in, in this same structure <clears throat> and see what we can what we can do to benefit from this by way of application. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us as we enter into your word. We are certainly asking you to help us see the truth as it is in our Savior and get fleshed out in your apostles' efforts as he writes to the church that you used him to birth into existence. May its application gradually sink into our own soul and may we learn to be better servants as well as uh, family of God in the area of recovery and restoration and correction and, 
admonition and, and, and affirmation, all the things a paternal, maternal framework and disposition would employ if they should want to preserve their children from being lost to other identities. We're asking this on the grounds of your son's blood, which is our cleansing and purging and washing and sanctification. We're asking this on the ground of his righteousness, which is our standing, immutable, irrevocable, unchangeable for all eternity. Christ in us, we in Christ, and you in us and we in you. This we are asking for us, our families, the body of Christ all over the world. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. First Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to be starting at verse 6. And I'm going to read through verse uh, 14, and then we're going to, uh, no, verse 16, then we're going to come back and work through our outlines. There are four points in our outline. I'll probably only get through three, but I, I really kind of want to make sure we, we build this frame. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what have you that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you glory as if you have not received it? Now you are full. Now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God that you did reign. And that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. It's an amazing set of statements that the Apostle Paul has made. And if you were to look at verse 8, you could see now he's turning the corner and engaging in what I would call the uh, admonition of irony. The admonition of irony. It really is him creating a dichotomy or a distinction between what he and the apostles are going through and what the children are experiencing. You could see this kind of prose or proverbial expression you are honored we are humiliated you are exalted and we are devastated you are full and we are weak and it goes on and on and on until he says listen i'm not trying to shame you but i am warning you see again what i'm trying to get at with you guys is that 
a father or a mother might go to that extent when they sit their child down to help them understand the implications of their irrationality at this moment. Does that make some sense? They might do that. And for us, this is holy writ. So there is a grander, more redemptively spiritual significance behind this that you and I want to benefit from to be able to make application. So we're going to be dealing with now the humble servants of Christ. And the subtitle is humility before what? The before honor, order out of chaos. And that really is the way that you can understand what is taking place, I believe is that the Apostle Paul is committing himself to a humility, exaltation paradigm of Christ. So we understand that Christ in a sort of uh, paradigm of revelation has two sides, the humility side and the exaltation. He came in humility. He conquered in exaltation. He came humbly, and now he sits in reign in exaltation. There are those two sides of the Christocentric redemptive message in the Bible, right? Humility before honor. Is that not Christ? And there is a very clear eschatological framework with that that I want to draw out now because the, the admonition of irony here is that the Apostle Paul is saying, you guys are living in an exaltation of Christ and we're living in a humility of Christ. Is that logically coherent theologically? See what I'm getting at? I want you to think that through. You're living at the echelon of the eschatological conclusion of what it means to overcome and here we are still dredging it out. And we're your parents. Am I making some sense? Right. So I really want us to engage in that and then understand how that same modality of understanding and application can work with us in regards to our own people that we love who will look upon us, particularly at this present time, in our rationale and perspective of the gospel. And and we will look like the um, fools and they look like the wise and we will look like the ridiculed as we are and they'll look like the, the, the well accepted you see the tension here and yet Paul is owning it he's not complaining and, and moaning and bickering he's simply setting up the stage to demonstrate what I really want you to capture the humility and the exaltation of Christ so under our first point, I want to show you something in the language in verse 6. Points number 1, 2, and 3 really have to do with verse 6. And then point number 4 has to do with verse 7. We should be able to get through it today. I'm going to uh, intentionally not overly analyze this text. But look with me at verse 6 and notice what it says. The Apostle Paul having left off with that whole subject of judging. I think we learned a lot from that. Look at verse 6. He says, now, and these things. You guys see that little clause in the opening expression? And these things, now, I, I, can I teach you today? Right, okay, so I've always told you that you're going to hear in the New Testament when it's dealing with um, pronouns and, um, and clauses, you hear the term these and those, right? If he had said those things, this is what we call a far prepositional pronoun expression. 
those things way over there. And when he goes these things, he's talking about the near pronoun propositional expression. These things immediately expressed, immediately stated, immediately addressed. These things. What are these things? Everything that the Apostle Paul has said from verse 1 of chapter 1 up to now. Everything that the Apostle Paul has said in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to this verse, are the these things. And if you're reading chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 carefully, you notice how Paul lauds them for being gifted, verses 1 through 5. And then he tells them, you need to be careful because your nets have holes in them. Verse 10, I told you that. Know how to mend your nets because as gifted as you are, there's a ton of divisions going on. And then he says, now I'm going to make it very plain. Some are saying this. That's what I'm hearing. People are sending me texts. They're sending me emails. They're letting me know. Some are saying these things. Is Christ divided? Chapter 1. And what Paul does after that argument, he says, I didn't come to be your Lord. I'm simply a servant by whom you come to know Jesus. You must know in the world with God, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. And in the world, with the world, the foolishness of the gospel is indeed the wisdom of God. You must know how to live in that paradoxical dichotomy, that, that contradiction of categories. You must understand that to pursue the world at the accolade of what they call wisdom is going to set you up to be in opposition to your God. Paul was saying, be careful because the teachers that are coming into Corinth are exercising worldly wisdom. And you guys are exalting them. Which means you have lost sight of the paradoxical nature of the gospel in the person of Christ, and therefore your identity is in jeopardy. Did that make some sense? Your identity is in jeopardy because you are esteeming the things of men. This is Luke chapter 16 which are an abomination to God. For whatsoever is highly esteemed among men is absolutely detestable before God. What a prism to look at the world and go, I need to be very careful about my emotional, psychological, and intellectual impulses being all excited about what excites the world. Does that make some sense? All right, let's keep, let's go. I want to deal with point number one uh, under a pattern of us in Christ. So I'm speaking in the soliloquy. I'm speaking for Paul and Apollos. He says in verse six, now these things, brethren, I have in a figure. See that phrase figure? Transferred. That's really one uh, Greek term. I have in a figure transformed. Uh, transferred. So the idea of a figure here is a pattern or a type. A pattern or a type. That's why we have under point number one, a what? A pattern of us where? In Christ. <clears throat> These are the three categories that he wants to let you know. So what he's saying is from chapter one, verse one up to now, my argument has been summed up in what we want you to understand by how I and Apollos function. Remember what he constantly did was say, you know, Apollos is a servant of God and I am a servant of God. Apollos, uh, uh, I sow and Apollos waters, but God is the one giving the increase. 
And that's going to be under your uh, second subpoint. Before we go there, I simply want you to get what he's saying to you and me is as he's making all these critical arguments about their behavior and dissolution, he's saying, now, if you want to look at Apollos and you want to look at me, don't divide us. We're not divided. Don't think you can go over to Apollos and build a camp with him. And then a group of y'all come over here and build a, a camp with me. That's not going to happen. I and Apollos are one. Didn't we already go through that in chapter three? I don't want to have to go back there because we don't have time for that. You should have caught that. So what that means is when he explicitly states, I and Apollos are one, you're not going to divide us. So capture that. I am transferring the exhortation to you of how we should be in a model that you can see in me and Apollos. You want to know how to be? Look at Apollos. Look at me. Are we divided? Are we exalting ourselves? Are we calling attention to ourselves? Y'all got what I'm saying now? That's the idea of transferring uh, by way of a pattern. I am transferring the subject matter by way of a pattern here. This here is really rooted in the term metamorphosis. We'll get into that more fully. A pattern of us, that is Paul and Apollos, but they are also where? Right? Because they couldn't operate in the unity and the oneness and in the fullness without being in Christ. That's subpoint B in your outline. Look at subpoint B. So under subpoint A, they are an example, they are a frame, they are a model. Subpoint B, a model of what? Unity, collaboration, and what? You caught that? That's what they are a model of. So, so if, if we catch, and what I did, I gave you three words that could be developed, but I, I think you understand them. Whenever we use the term example, we're talking about a paradigm. Literally in the Greek, it's a tupos. And a tupos is a print of something that represents something else. Okay? So when you have a print of something that represents something else, it stands in parallel to the reality. You have an opportunity to look at the pattern and get acquainted with the reality through the pattern. Did that make some sense? So we often use the word paradigm, okay? Para alongside, dime, paradigm, or diagram, or picture, or frame. Everything in life is that way. Everything in your life is a paradigmatic lesson or ground of reflection or model or example. There's nothing that you and I experience in this world by which we learn except through paradigms. Okay, that's how we learn. A chair is a paradigm of something. A car is a paradigm of something. Listen, you are a paradigm of something. Christ is the paradigm. Did you get that? That's why God sets him forth as the paradigm. And so when we understand Christ is all, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to go into it anymore fully here. When we talk about Christ being the paradigm, what we want to understand is his paradigmatic significance and relevance in everything that's going on. Because this helps us understand how God meant for things to be in this world. And when you and I don't have paradigms, when we don't have examples, then we're lost. So when you and I are created in the Imago Dei, Genesis 1, 26, 27, God makes us now to automatically be what? Examples. 
Every human being is to be a paradigm of God. Every parent is a paradigm of God as the father and as the mother. All the children are paradigms of God as the son of the living God. Every relationship has a paradigmatic significance in relationship to truth being revealed to us corresponding to the reality of God. That makes some sense, right? I had to drive that home. So when I use the term example, frame, and model, you know what I'm really talking about? I'm talking about how you and I understand things in the world, how we understand the world. A Christian has a biblical worldview. Do you know what that means? We have the resources through the word of God to frame everything to categorize everything, to put everything in a proper framing, a proper perspective, a proper view. And if we don't, we don't have anything to say when that thing collapses and disintegrates into something other than what it should be. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, where the Apostle Paul will give us this kind of principle. And they... He's warning the believer to be careful about how we use this world. You guys got that? Notice what he says. And they that use this world as not doing what with it? Now, that's a good warning, isn't it? Because we are called to use the world. The world is there for us. We live, move, and have our being in the world. John 17 says, Father, they are in the world. Keep them while they are there. So you're in the world. So if I, if I press down into this just because I'm always listening for the lack of coherent thinking on the part of believers when we make these quip statements and these arguments. You're not supposed to be of the world, okay, all right. In what way? What are you talking about? Am I supposed to live on another planet, eat different kind of food and all of that kind of stuff? So if you're going to take a Bible verse like I'm not of the world and then you're actually intimating by that, that you live so differently that there is not a natural God ordained integration between you and the physical dimension and this world, then you're setting me up for a lie because that's a falsehood. There is a sense in which I am part of this world as every other human being because I'm in the what? I'm in the what? I'm in the body. I'm in the body. So don't act like you're some kind of super person that doesn't have to eat, sleep, rest, drink, engage with people, work, learn. We have to do all that the way the world does. So here's what Paul is saying. You must use the world you must be careful not to abuse it. Is that what the language is saying? So I'm just trying to wake you up to the simplicity of the scriptures when they give these quick bifurcations or categorical distinctions of a imperative or a indicative. As an indicative, we are people in the world. I have a whole, whole uh, theological book about the Puritans and it's called Worldly Christians. Worldly Christians. And what this book teaches is how the Puritans understood how to live life in this world. Because a lot of times, even with church history, what you're getting is statements about what it means to be a Puritan. And what a lot of that is are arguments on a false premise by people that didn't like the Puritans because of their moral, ethical, and spiritual stance, and they would talk that they were weird people that didn't know how to negotiate life. 
They knew how to negotiate life better than anyone else on the planet. This is why I shared with you last Friday, we will learn something from the Amish because they learned how to use this world in certain ways and not what? Abuse it. And the term that Paul is using here, abuse, fundamentally means to actually idolatrize the world, as I talked to you about on Sunday. That's a big challenge for all of us. Not idolatrizing something we are commanded to engage. Right, so it's very important for you and I to get that. Now he says, and here's the reason why, for the what of this world? The what of this world? That's our same Greek term that's in the text. We have transferred to ourselves, transferred, transfigured to ourselves, transfigure, metamorphosis. It is a fashion. He says the morph, morphing of this world, the fashion of this world, the structures of this world are passing away. Is that what it just said? All right. So I can tell I'm not going to get far with you guys because I want you to get it. Think about what he just said. There are people inordinately cleaving to something that is naturally dissipating. It has an expiration date. And we're cleaving to it like it has permanent structural essence and reality. By the way, I'll drill into it a little bit more. This is where our brother was just slightly unwise when he wanted to challenge me on not using the term reset because I know what I'm talking about. Since the fall, this is what we call the noetic effect of sin, our world has constantly been morphing. The fashion of it has been changing from epic to epic to epic. So for a while, a thing will be formed and fashioned with these ideas, with these concepts, with these practical expressions, and then it will begin to dissipate. Does that make some sense? Right, and here we are in the 21st century of the New Testament, and we're looking at our world, and we're already seeing the fashion of it changing. It's changing. And the issue is, how is the believer going to engage these changes of something that was never meant to be permanently fixed in a paradigm in the first place? We're going we're gonna to respond to it loosely because this is not our home. We're going to respond to it objectively. We're going to watch to see what things remain as God shakes it, what, what we might be able to observe and constitute as organic and real versus that which is synthetic and toxic. Did you hear what I just said? Because if we're moving into a dimension of human experience for which God has determined to continue to bear witness to the glory of his son, you and I want to be able to understand the fashion that's coming. All right, so I'm going to leave that right there for now. For the fashion of this world is fading away. If I use that as an example, what was Paul talking about? The coming down of the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 2 again, the stone cut out without hands, crushing the feet of that giant idol. Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Grecian kingdom, and the Roman Empire all coming down. I told you that was the sixth reset. And now the church has to figure out how to live in a new world. And look at what Paul is doing. He's telling the church. Now, there are going to be some things that, that remain, particularly in that sixth reset. 
and you're going to want to know how to negotiate them. <laughs> like what did remain was men and women. What did remain was husband and wife. What did remain was family. What did remain was a hierarchy of structure that was patriarchal in nature. It did remain, but it was constantly being challenged. And one of the reasons that stuff did remain was because there was enough truth in the church to penetrate the culture with the leaven of the gospel to make sure that men and women were thinking biblically. What if the Bible had been taken away early on in the uh, first century up to, let's say, the first millennium, and people had absolutely no idea of Torah, no idea of God, no idea of the true and the living God, rather, and no idea of what it means to be a male and a female. Am I making sense? Right. So the biblical narrative, by virtue of the mission of the Christian, preserved the world while it was in dissolution under that sixth paradigm. See what I'm getting at? And this is the reason why you and I are comfortably able to live as male and female in the context of him who created us even at this hour. I'm not so sure that's going to be the case 10 to 15 years from now. And that people who will be preserving the biblical paradigm over against the collapsing and morphing of this, this reset will be living in stark contradiction to a society that will be so obtusely disfigured and transformed into something else that the two won't even have a remote compatibility. Does that make some sense? Right, and you and I are going to have to deal with what those new categories, which are already emerging, are going to be when they become normative. See what I'm getting at? All right, good. All right, good. I, I had to work with that. Go back to our outline. I want to see if I can uh, jump to point number two, but I'm going to stay at point one to reiterate an example as a paradigm a frame is the way we use that paradigm as a lens a model should be what emerges from it a model should be what emerges from it pastor what is it is sub point b the people of god must understand the value of unity the people of god must understand the value of collaboration the people of god must understand the value of what yeah and we're getting ready to see why. Because the enemy comes always to divide, create disunity, destroy collaboration, and utterly demolish humility. See what I'm getting at? Acts Adam and Eve. They woke up one day at enmity with God and one another. And so these are the things you and I want to work through. So I'm just giving you, that's the framing. That's very clear to me. That is the, the framing right there. Point number two. In order for this pattern of the apostles, which were in Christ, to be of impact to the church at Corinth and you and me, Paul says, by these, you must be discipled. Go back to your verse. I want you to see it in your verse, verse 6. And these things, brethren, have I in a figure transferred in myself and to Apollos, for your sake, right? So the reason why we're walking in this pattern as I've explained it is for you. That makes sense. Now watch this. In order that, that's a little henna purpose clause, in order that you might do what? You might do what? 
Learn. You need to listen. You need to hear that. So when he says learn, he's not simply saying consider. He's not simply saying evaluate on a speculative level. He's saying in order that you might actually understand and act on in the same way. It's literally our our Greek term for, for disciple. I want you to be discipled by the pattern of our life. That makes sense. Go ye into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Of who? Christ. That's why I told you, Apollos and Paul are in Christ. Christ is the model. He's the model of unity. He's the model of collaboration. He's the model of humility. See, I'm circling back, but I'm using Paul and Apollos because, quite frankly, they were saved to be a model to the church. And you and I are saved to be a model to the church, to those in our community, and to the world in this same way. So he says, in order that you might learn, big word, in order that you might learn where? In us. See, we're going back to the example. We're going back to the model, are we not? We're going back to the framework which Paul and Apollos present to us as a way to make reference to how we should be thinking. Look again at what it says. I think we will make this. In order that you might learn in us, learn from us, learn by us. I love the preposition in us because what he's saying is you must enter in by persuasion that as we are, you are also. So this the little preposition in constitutes union in Christ. That's union by Christ. That has to do with origin and power and resource, right? Through Christ. That means Christ is working in us, the will and the do of his good pleasure. So when Christ is in us, Christ can work through us. He can work by us to once again project a model, a paradigm, an image of himself, right? But we got to beware. Preposition in. Not on the outside, on the inside. This has to do with the word discipleship. Mathetes in the Greek, methano in its verb form. It means to be a learner, a learner. I want you to hear it now because there is a fundamental flaw in the educational system in our nation, and it has been for a long time at the proxies level. Um, A learner in the biblical sense is someone who becomes from the beginning an apprentice of a master who is his model for him not only to listen to and be taught by, but to mimic. In other words, when you send somebody to a master carpenter, a master physician, a master technician, a master whatever the case may be, and, and he, that your son or daughter is coming as an apprentice, that person now needs to take on their whole modality of expression to affirm that the relationship between the two is not just academic. And way too many times Christians only have an academic relationship with Christ for they may know what the textbook says, but they don't necessarily look like the author of the textbook. And that's American Christianity. 
Now, the reality, children of God, is that we're all somebody's disciple. Can I tell you why? We look like something. Every one of us look like something. Am I making some sense? I just want to drive that home. Because I may not be a model of Christ at any fundamental level, morally, uh, ethically, or spiritually. Character uh, characterologically. I may not have qualities by which, even in a remote sense, you can go, I can see in Pastor Jesse the fruit of the Spirit. I may not. I may just be a good Bible teacher. And then I would argue that I'm actually not a good Bible teacher. I'm just a Bible teacher. Because a good Bible teacher would have the attendant fruits of the Spirit as a cause to persuade you that you should do more than just listen to me. You should adopt the God that I have now become an example, a model, a paradigm for. Does that make sense? Because that's, that's the mandate, make disciples. That's the mandate. It's not just teach people and give them a degree. And that's the problem in our world. I love the way some of the conversations are happening with very smart people in the world of scholarship and philosophy and science because they're wrestling with the historic enlightenment period where uh, propositional ideas and theories took on such heavy weight of presence in the minds of people at the level of calculation, computation, uh, again, argumentation and debate and, and philosophies in their abstract sense. But those people, as brilliant as they were in their ability to argue their positions, were morally and ethically bankrupt and and it would be utterly surprising to find out that men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle's and Philo and many of the newer uh, enlightenment philosophers all adopted the present pagan crap that you and I are facing today around sexual perversion so you'll read their books, and I'm, I'm really talking about the postmodern irrationalists that have thought that somehow because they were so smart with their words that reality is merely a set of propositional constructs that we can take as a grid and place it on people and shape them however we want. This here means that they were utterly ignorant. They were utterly ignorant of the fundamentals of what it means to be human and what it means to be real, but because they understood the power of words. Remember what Paul said? I did not come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom. I didn't come to overwhelm you with rhetoric because that's what happened in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. That's what's been going on in our world for many years. How do we know? Because the uh, compilation, the anthems of information and data can all be compiled under the term science. The sciences, okay? Philosophical sciences, material sciences, mechanical sciences, they're all under the term sciences. Are you guys keeping up with me? A little side, but it's important because I just want you to get it. Science is the term gnosis in the Greek. Gnosis is from where I told you the distortion of a hyperview of science in terms of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the framework for all of the sciences going on today that have influenced the world apart from God. Did you hear what I just stated? All of the disciplines today that are in our world that have shaped our world since the, um, since the um, second, second uh, 
um, industrial revolution, since the industrial revolution, have been the emergence of technology based upon the sciences at absent of a moral ethical framework by which men and women can actually still operate out of the imago day in other words men and women are seeking knowledge which is what paul is about to warn about now and you and i have heard it in first corinthians chapter eight knowledge puffs up and that what he said gnosis puffs up it's love that edifies that's where we're getting ready to go so what I, i'm saying to you is Again, in the biblical concept of bifurcations, the biblical concept of bifurcations is almost never you take one over the other. They're not set up to be an either or. So when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love, what? Edify. It doesn't mean to become stupid. Love is not stupid. It means to prioritize the ethic of love as the foundation for determining what knowledge is worthy of embracing as a mechanism for expression. Does that make sense? It's extremely important for us to get that. So in our society, you and I are now led by a bunch of immoral, inept buffoons. You understand what I just stated? And many of them have degrees, and they're the ones issuing out degrees. And your schools that are raising our kids since the days of John Locke and Dewey and others are not demanding that our kids be moral and ethical. Today, it's a crime to be moral and ethical. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? All right, let me keep going. I just wanted to, to kind of help you with that. And so notice what Paul says. He says, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is what? Right, that's going to be our second, uh, our, our third point in our outline. But before we get there, notice what he says. In order that no one of you be what? There it is. There it is. That the subtle leaven of intellectualism and sophistic rhetoric and the coining of phrases and the magic that comes with the rhetorician who makes you feel like you are something more than what scripture says you are can dislodge you from the sobriety of what we really truly are, which is what he's about to argue, and put you in a place of opposition to God because your head is puffed up. This is why I've said for years in this place, we raise our beautiful snakes. And that's our children. Little bitty vipers and theological diapers. You can borrow that. That came from, from my reformed brother long ago. Little bitty vipers. That's what your children are. As soon as they be born, they're snakes. Because their mom and daddy are snakes. You must know that. So you have to become a snake handler when you have kids. And you're getting bit by them quite frequently. Fortunately, you have the antidote to, uh, to their bite because you are as they are. So the venom is not going to kill you. It's just going to wake you up to the reality that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that what must be in the cabinet of the toolbox, the cabinet of the toolbox of your life is the word of God because the word of God brings healing. Y'all keeping up with me? Very important. Where the word of God gets shut down in your home, your snakes are going to grow even more viscerally uh, toxic and it can destroy your home. 
and particularly if mom and dad abandon a biblical worldview, they're going to be the worst snakes in the house. And y'all can all be going to church. You can all be going to church and you can all be going to a sound doctrinally sound church per se. Although I've argued to, with you before that sound doctrine is comprehensive. It's not just having right philosophical views about abstract theological truth. Sound doctrine is about what we know and how we know it and how we apply it. Sound meaning through and through. We believe it and we walk in it. Does that make some sense? You're only sound when the truth has set you free. All right, so it's important to know that. But he says here very quickly, because that's going to be the point that Paul is going to be dealing with. See the phrase puffed up? He's got children that have metaphorically left home after being raised under really good tutelage by a mom or a dad or both in the word of God, and they went to college. And a year in college, guess what? They come home puffed up. Do you see it? See, these, this is the metaphor I'm saying I want you to embrace. Because Paul is about to deal with his college students who've gone to college and they've sat under other professors and other teachers who are strategically designed to remove the kids from a sense of allegiance to their parents. I've told every one of you, when you walked your kids into orientation in every college that they have ever gone to, you heard those people tell your kids, hey, from here on out, drop what your mama and your daddy said at the door. This learning is about you. They were really saying, we're going to take you away from your mom and your dad. Did y'all hear what I just said? And we paid for that. You paid for that. You paid for them to come home and fight with you about a biblical worldview, about how God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. They, oh, no, 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 no. Mankind has been on this planet for millions and millions of years. Okay, give me the evidence. Well, I can't give you the evidence. My professor said it. Right, because they can't give you the evidence. They have no evidence for origin. They have a hypothesis. They have a faith system, just like everybody else has a faith system. And they build it with all kind of false criteria. Am I making some sense? And so the goal of the Christian child believer is to go into those secular systems if they have to with a biblical prism to be able to remain objective about the BS that they hear from their teachers. So when they come out, they don't come out dis distorted. But when they come out puffed up, guess what they have done? They've cast off the love of the truth. Because the love of the truth is what God says will keep you and I from being deceived. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, God gave them over to a college education. Are you hearing me? Because they did not receive a love of the truth, God gave them over to man's calculations of what really matters in this world. Human degrees, doctorates and PhDs and so forth. Y'all hearing what I'm saying, right? It's really true. It's really true. Now, for many of our college graduated kids, and most of mine are, they realize their mission now is to go back in there and help other kids avoid the bad doctrine of the secular system. I could, I could argue that. There are going to be some of us that don't go into those systems 
but there are going to be others that are in that system to be able to pull kids out of it at the uh, epistemic level in terms of biblical worldviews. Remember, I told you there are things to learn in the secular world. Don't, 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 don't lose it. Don't enter into a faulty bifurcation. Did you keep up with me? Don't do that. What you want to overcome in all of these disciplines is the ideology underneath it driving you to separate that set of systems from God. That makes sense. Good, good. That's the battle we're fighting. Great. So the reason why Paul is using that term puffed up is because he's going to use it again. If you will notice with me over in verse 17 and then verse 18. I'm glad I got your attention. I'll be able to just touch on this a little bit more and then we'll we'll drill down into point number four and more on Friday. I am going to read it tonight. Notice what Paul says here in verse. um, Well, start back at verse 16. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye what? See what I mean by discipled? Now, you can follow Paul because Paul and Apollos are where? Where are they? That's right. If a man's not in Christ, don't follow him. If a woman is not in Christ, you are not to follow them. So, see, Paul is not usurping Christ's place when he says, be followers of me. Because in another verse, guess what he says? He adds the preposition and the proper noun. Be followers of me as I a follower of Christ. That's what he means. You'll find that in another passage. So often with your Bible, when you read a little quip like this, be ye followers of me, you go, why should I follow you, Paul? In another verse, it's because I'm following Christ. And that's absolutely right. That is the hierarchy of relationship. Some of us are following others who are following others who are following others who are following others who are following Christ. And and quite frankly, it doesn't work any other way. Like you're not going to be a good Christian if you don't have a model, a paradigm, a framework to follow. You still need the hoopadime. I'm going to touch on that before we close. I'm going to show you the difference between a paradigm and hoopadime. And people miss this all the time when they try to go to the pastor. I looked up the word hoopadime and I couldn't find it. Okay. Of course you missed it because you're assuming that hoopadime is an English word. And it's a Greek word. And we're going to look at it in a moment. But notice what he says. Be ye followers of me. And for this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved what? Do you see the parallel here? Paul is a type of who? The father. Timothy is a type of who? The son. What has the father done? Sent the son. And what Paul is saying is, when you see Timothy, you're going to see who? You're going to see me. Do you see the parallels? All right, so this is what Paul is saying to the church of Corinth. I'm not coming right now, but Timothy is. And Timothy is a model of me. Everything that I know, I taught Timothy. When you listen to Timothy, you're listening to me. Beautiful, isn't it? This is what we call a Christocentric interpretation of the word of God. It must be done that way. This book is about our master. Listen to it again. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, Now watch this. Who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be where? Y'all see what I'm saying? Now, the father is sending the son, and the son is going to operate in the power of the spirit to bring us into remembrance of the ways of the father that are in the son. 
Because the son only came to glorify the father. So in order to have the father, you've got to have the son. And the goal of the Holy Spirit is to bring us into the reality of Christ so that we can become sons of God. Is that true? So you guys can see that in the text, right? Beautiful. Bring you into remembrance. Isn't that what Jesus says? And we know he, the Holy Spirit, shall come. He will bring you into remembrance of the things of myself. He will glorify me. He will not talk of himself. That's John 16, 13. Now watch this. As I teach everywhere in every what? That means his teaching is comprehensive. That means he doesn't teach one thing here and another thing there. It also means that the churches in the first century had a level of unity that doesn't look anything like what we're dealing with today in our present churches. Not only was their content consistently and radically Christocentric, because that's all the apostles did was preach Christ, but the model and expression of the church in terms of its, its, its expression and form of worship and its ethical missional lifestyle was fairly consistent across all of the churches. When you went to those churches, you knew they were churches of Christ because they loved Christ and they loved one another and they preached the gospel and they lived in this world the way Christ called them to live. Did that make some sense? Right. You weren't struggling with trying to keep your head clear because of all of these nuanced denominational differences where they were emphasizing we are of Paul, of Apollos, of Cephas, of this man, of that man, of that doctrine, of that teaching, of that teaching, right? No, it's all one in Christ when Christ is the essence of it all. Critically important here. I've taught this for years too. While you and I are not called to uniformity with each other or any other local church that that purports to be a church of Christ, while well, we're not called to uniformity, like you don't have to dress like me, you don't have to talk like me. You're called to be you in Christ. This is how we're doing. This is how we know we're doing a good job in our teaching. If I actually help you see Christ, then that means you will get past only seeing me. And therefore, what qualities in me that are helpful for you and you end up adopting because it's very hard not for you to adopt some of my qualities. Those qualities are only commendable as they are ultimately found in Christ. Did that make some sense? They are only commendable as they are ultimately found in Christ. And, and what I mean by commendable is God will endorse them because we won't be trying to make disciples of ourselves. It's never the idea that you and I are called to make disciples of ourselves. They are always disciples of Christ. But there's no way that I could be an instrument of making you a disciple of Christ if I'm not one. All I will do with you is make you a disciple of men. That's the best I could do. I don't have a frame. I don't have an example. I don't have a model except myself. And this is why you see churches constantly operating out of the hooper exaltation of some bishops, some men, and their teachings, which are utterly diminished in terms of the person and work of Christ. So when the person and work of Christ is comprehensively taught, you and I have a continual vision of him. And we see through each other to him of whom we are being transformed into his image. Does that make some sense? And our unity is in him. Our unity is not in one another. And, and when that happens, guess what? Because of the broad nature of him who is in all, 
Every one of us gets to maintain our own individual autonomy. We are not Marxists. We are not a collectivist group. We don't lose our identity. We don't become just one beehive mind. Y'all got that? What we need to be able to do is actually be able to cultivate the unity and individuality of each one of us so that we can see the beauty of Christ in you uniquely the way that Christ has made you. That's what we should be doing. And the world is better off when that's the case. Right. So a cult is that group where you get a cookie-cutter pattern made over in the image of men. There are a few more things I want to say before we pull out. So when Paul uses this expression, he says over in verse 18, now some are what? Puffed up. Now, now I want you to get this because I'm going to tie this to Sunday, this Sunday. They're puffed up because they're assuming that Paul is not coming. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? That's what it says. Look at it. As though I would not come to you. I'm going to close it here. This is what I love about my Bible. It tells you different stories with the same theme all the time. So in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, and when they saw that Moses had delayed to return, they went to making idols. And I told you, that is the paradigm running through Scripture. Jesus is coming one day. And Jesus has warned in Luke chapter 12, the unfaithful servant says in my heart, my Lord delays his coming. And then he begins to live like the harlot and the, the profligate and the publican and abusing the people of God and just living a wretched unbeliever's life. And when Jesus comes, he says that servant is going to be chopped up and cast into hell because he did not believe I am on my way. Now, this goes back to the uh, fifth verse. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. You know what we learn? All right, so in that tension, here's what he's saying to you and me. He's saying to you and me, as we're living out our life and we're liberating ourselves from the faulty judgment of others, and we are liberating ourselves from the false notion that we can see our own selves absolutely clearly. Remember, that's freedom, right? Freedom is knowing that I have a limited capacity of understanding myself. The Lord has to bring clarity on where I am. That's a beautiful thing. For him to do so is for the Lord to come. He comes with clarity. He comes with understanding. He comes with conviction. He taps you on the shoulder and lets you know you're going down the wrong path. Often, if he does not do that, you're, you, have, you have done an exit strategy, you know, ignorantly, unwittingly, and you're way down, you know, the byways and off the course until it gets dark and cold, then you realize how far away you are. And now the Holy Ghost has to come tow you back onto the highway and get you back on that straight and narrow. Am I telling the truth? Right, and this is what Paul actually is trying to do for the Corinthians, because they're puffed up as if he would not come. The Lord is coming, is he not? Yes. 